What are you doing here? It's challenge day. You know we've influenced nearly every facet of white America. From our music, to our style of dress, walk, talk, dress, mannerisms. We enrich your very existence. You should say thank you, man. Welcome to the Black Loop Podcast with Tariq Alameen. Here, we center all of our discussions around blackness, the black experience here in the United States. Uh, we bring you interviews, commentary, and artistic performances. And today, it is commentary. We're talking about Black History Month. Uh, it is almost over, but before we begin, I always like to begin by uh, calling on, beseeching, imploring the guidance and protection of the Most High, uh, asking that the outcome of this conversation be one that furthers us along in our understanding, uh, leads to constructive dialogue, uh, and moves us forward. So, that said, uh, Black History Month is coming to a close. And as I am one who tries to reflect not only on the distant past, but on the moments we find slipping away from us right now, right in the here and now, I have to ask myself the question, as we have moved down the river of time, have we rethought the destination of Black History Month, right? Have we thought about where we're going, who is with us, uh, where are we headed? Now, looking at the history of Black History Month, the precursor to Black History Month in the U.S. was launched by historian Dr. Carter G. Woodson and the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, which determined that the second week of February would be Negro History Week. This was back in 1926, almost 100 years ago. To illustrate the importance of documenting and teaching black history, Dr. Woodson said, well, this is a excerpt of a comment, um, a statement attributed to him. He says, if a race has no history, it has no worthwhile tradition. It becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world, and it stands in danger of being exterminated. So when we think about the dominant narrative, when the dominant narrative about you is that you're incapable lazy, of low moral character, criminal, bestial, and so on, when the fruits of your labor go to feed others and you don't get to partake, when the products of your creativity and ingenuity are snatched away and given to the world under the names of white men who reap the rewards of their thievery, then a psychological imperative exists to document, research, and teach the African-American so that he and she can know that the stories being told about them are false. Right? This is a critical understanding. It's a critical realization to realize that the narrative that is being told about you is in direct opposition to your survival. It is in direct opposition to your prosperity, to your success, to your sense of self. Right. So you've got to study. You've got to read. You've got to teach. You got to do all these things to counter this psychological warfare that is taking place. So this becomes a critical component of our young people in particular, being able to see their contributions in the building of the world that exists around them. For them to be able to know that the stories that are being told to them about them are false. This is an essential, an essential element in African-Americans shared claim to this land, right? It's essential in our pushing back against the idea that when reparations are brought up, that conversation is entered into that we don't second guess ourselves and think that we're asking for handouts instead of what is 
rightfully owed us. But African-Americans having knowledge of the history of African-Americans is only half of the concern that I want to bring up here today. It's not the whole picture. We are a pluralistic nation today. That is what we are. We are a pluralistic nation. We're comprised of just about every ethnicity on the planet. Now, we talk in black and white terms, but there are many shades and hues to, uh, that are used to paint the picture that is America today. But if we're talking about privilege and disadvantage, if we're talking about inclusion and exclusion, if we're talking about freedom and servitude, then we can easily speak in black and white terms because to be considered white in America, particularly a white male, is to be in possession of privilege, inclusion, freedom. And if not outright, then those things are considered certainly to be accessible. So when it comes to black history education, which Black History Month is an introduction to, uh, for all of America's secondary and primary grade public school students. Notice I did not say parochial or private, but public school students. We should ask ourselves, what is the desired outcome of that education? How do we assess that? And probably the most important thing is what constitutes black history? I want to play a clip from a CNN town hall. Black, white, and blue in America. This was in uh, 2016. You're going to hear an African-American brother ask a question on the perception of the Black Lives Matter movement. And the first respond is former Chicago police superintendent Gary McCarthy. And I believe at that time he was actually still, yeah, at that time he was the superintendent. Uh, and we all know what happened in 2016, Laqu uh, Laquan McDonald. Uh, but anyway, he also happens to be running for mayor of Chicago right now. My, how things come together. But let's take a listen to this clip and uh, we'll pick up after that. Giuliani recently made the assertion that Black Lives Matter movement, uh, a movement that is grounded in notions of respect, dignity, justice, and sanctity of life, sanctity of black life. He noted that this was inherently racist. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Gary McCarthy, you, what do you think Black Lives Matter? Do you agree with the former mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani? Well, I, I can tell you this. I think if there was a movement called White Lives Matter, it would be considered racist. So I think that all lives matter. I spent 35 years. As a matter of fact, today is my 35th anniversary as a police officer, yeah. starting here in New York City. And for 35 years, I've been trying to reduce crime and stop murders. And it didn't matter if they were black, white, green, or purple. So yeah. I, I'm a believer that we got to get by the, the differences. We got to have an honest conversation, which I hope this is going to open up to be. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we have to have exposure to each other and we have to sit down and really rip at this thing and get get after it do you do, I, just to applaud black history month has been around since the mid 1920s and if it were truly successful then first of all there might not be a need for a black lives matter movement because the policies and procedures particularly as it relates to law enforcement and their relation to black people it would reflect an awareness of the unspeakable abuses, this history of uh, that black folks have endured in the United States, carried out by law enforcement officials. So let's stop and consider. Stop and think about the number of African Americans taken from their homes under the dark of night in the Jim Crow South by white men with badges on their chest 
and hoods on their heads. Now, that history will likely never be known, right? Never fully known because that history remains buried. But we are forced to live with the consequences of that history. We are forced to live with a sensitivity toward our relationship with law enforcement, with police, because we have far too often. We have not seen police. As a as a servant of our communities, but as disruptors. As folks that take you out. I mean, literally take you out. But anyway. Only someone who has enjoyed the privilege of that ignorance could say and would say all lives matter. When have white lives in America not mattered? Because Black History Month has been so inwardly focused, particularly in our public school systems. And by inwardly, I mean focused on teaching African-American students about those great contributors in industry, art, medicine, intellectual thought and so on. But they do not include the details of systemic white aggression toward African-Americans beyond the savagery of chattel slavery, which uh, in its own right, it deserves its own study. It's its own lesson plan. That's uh, cruelty must be. It must be communicated in detail and known by all the youth of America, particularly, particularly our white students. But because that history is presented very much in a one dimensional manner. It is difficult, damn near impossible, for good hearted, God conscious white people to truly fathom the grotesque nature of the privilege they have inherited or have access to. Right? If you don't understand how your present came to be, how you came to be in possession of the life that you have, if you don't understand the foundation that is built on, you don't understand the language that is being used by people who stand up today and say black lives matter. You don't understand what that's rooted in. And it's not entirely. It's not entirely the fault of those who stand up and say all lives matter. But it is something that must be remedied. It must be addressed. Because it is it is to our collective detriment. So, as I say. Black History Month, it has been inwardly focused. And because those acts of white aggression and barbarism have been left to sit on the bottom shelf where readers rarely go or they have only been spoken of in small gatherings where those stories are already known and you're basically preaching to the converted, those stories, they don't have a national impact. They do little to impact the national consciousness. They do little to hold a mirror up to our nation's face and force reflection. And as such, we have not only white, but African-Americans standing up, calling out chants of all lives matter and saying things like black lives matter movement is divisive and it's racist. And they say things like if there was a white lives matter movement or organization called white lives matter, we would look at it as inherently racist. Well, when you know the history, the complete history, you realize that it would be. And you realize that when people have acted upon that thinking, it has been the lives of black folks that have been adversely affected. It has been black folk who have been dispossessed, who have been killed, who have been disadvantaged, 
falsely incarcerated, accused, victims of lynch mobs. Their attackers never convicted, never tried. But when you don't know the history, when you live in a bubble, then you stand up and you say things like, all lives matter. And like I said, we don't just have white people standing up saying all lives matter. We, got some, we have black people standing up saying all lives matter. And they go even further than simply to say that the Black Lives Matter movement or idea in itself is divisive and racist. They look at the institution of Black History Month and say that it is also divisive and racist and needs to be done away with. We have to make up our minds. Either we want to have segregation or integration. And if we don't want segregation, then we need to get rid of channels like BET and the BET Awards and the Image Awards, where you're only awarded if you're black. If it were the other way around, we would be up in arms. It's a double standard. So you say there shouldn't be a BET channel? No, I don't think so, no. Just like there shouldn't be a Black History Month. You know, we're Americans, period. That's it. Are you saying there shouldn't be a Black History Month because there isn't a White History Month? Exactly. Poor Stacey Dash. Yeah, that was Stacey Dash if you didn't, if you didn't get the name. Um, yeah, what do you say? What, what, I mean, what can you really say about that? I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not about to go in on her. You know, that, that's a, actually a much, that's an older clip. But I don't think she's changed her tune. I think she's still of the opinion uh, that she expressed. There were many white people who applauded her. And, and, and let's be honest, there were black folks who also applauded, right? They were hoping to be recognized as good Americans by those who understand the power of not mentioning the devil by name. Right, there's a power in that, in letting the devil rest or exist among you, nameless, formless. But we're talking about white supremacy and white privilege. And these are two realities that affected, that affected the national consciousness, that affected the narrative around white and black, that put black in a deficit model that put us in a position where Dr. Carter G. Woodson says, no, we need to have a study of the Negro in America. We need to know about the history of these, of these Africans brought to the United States and how they have contended with oppression, how they have contended with denial of their humanity. And they have still, they have still managed to contribute. They have still managed to bring about art and great beauty, even though situated in unspeakable pain. So this is important that we we craft our own narrative, that we do our own research, that we document and that we teach. And this is all in opposition to the white supremacist structure. So that's the devil that we're talking about. We're talking about white supremacy and white privilege existing unchecked unspoken about and i gotta say i'm really i i'm, I'm really pleased that i'm hearing more uh journalists on air uh major media outlets where you have white anchors that are sitting up and they are mentioning white supremacy by name they're talking about it because all sickness has to surface it has to come up it has to it has to bring itself to the forefront and at the very least whether it's a matter of ratings or 
or whatever. But I would like to think that there is an element of simply being sensitized, of just being good people, being aware that there's a responsibility to call out the evil, the dysfunctional, the wicked. Call them out so that we can stamp it out. Right. So I'm happy to see that there are more who are uh, engaged in that uh, actively now. So white supremacy, white privilege. These are the greatest sources of division and inequality in the United States. And one only has to look at black history in the United States to see it because there is not a one hundred million dollar Hollywood production chronicling the destruction of black Wall Street. In Tulsa, Oklahoma. Committed by neighboring whites, there is no collective grief. There's no sense of collective shame or at the very least a sense of common debt that those who are affected are owed something. Now, of course, this is a different conversation than slavery reparations, but still one. Each of these instances. Deserves right there deserves to be retribution. There deserves to be some type of recompense. There deserves to be there deserves to be an allocution. Right. Somebody needs to stand up and say, this is what we did. This is where this is where we aired, where we went wrong, where we did not represent what we say we are to the world, what we say we are to ourselves. Greenwood was a historic freedom colony in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was one of the most prominent concentrations of African-American businesses in the United States during the early 20th century, popularly known as America's Black Wall Street until the Tulsa race riot of 1921. I had to stop and read this directly from Wikipedia. And I read it because I wanted to take a moment to just take issue with this sanitizing, with this whitewashing. The Tulsa race riot of 1921. I'm going to say it again. The Tulsa race riot of 1921. Go to Wikipedia, look at it yourself. Right. The Tulsa race riot of 1921. Isn't isn't that subtle? Isn't that just really sneaky race riot? Not massacre. Not massacre, but race riot, because that sounds like, you know, you got two sides. You got white aggression. You got black aggression. But we know that's not the case. That is not the case. As a matter of fact, anytime you go through uh, any research especially internet research, right? Anytime you go through and you look through Wikipedia and you're looking for um, massacres, you're going to find the word riot. Anytime it's white aggression against black folks, it's going to, they'll use the word riot to try to tone it down a bit, to say that, well, kind of the, the Trump defense, there are bad people on both sides. That's pretty slick. Pretty slick, but this was an actual massacre. White residents massacred hundreds, if not thousands, of black residents. They tore the neighborhood to the ground, 35 square blocks in hours. Hours. Displaced over 10,000 people. The graves, their mass graves filled with victims of white aggression that have not been, to this day, exhumed, 
right? There's a there there's there's been uh, there's been resistance on behalf of the uh, um, uh, the city government. Some nonsense about not disturbing the dead. Well, see the dead the dead are dead, and right, and we need we need peace, and we need answers, and need we need. Um, we need some healing and we can't get healing if we don't address the wrong that was done. So what they call a riot was actually a massacre. It was white aggression fueled by white supremacy and envy to see a town of black people prospering. White men, actual law enforcement, actually. Right. As a matter of fact, let's go. Let's go back to how it's documented. And we know Wikipedia is something that can be edited. Right. But let's let's go back to the Wikipedia entry. We're talking about systemic white violence. It says the city government of Tulsa conspired with the mob. Right. The mob that's attacking Greenwood. Arresting more than six thousand black residents and refusing to provide them with protection or assistance. Law enforcement officials used airplanes to drop firebombs on buildings. Right, there were eyewitness accounts. As a matter of fact, it was one of the oldest, I believe she passed a couple of years ago, but one of the oldest survivors of that massacre. She talked about uh, conversations uh, that took place as, as people were coming out of it, you know, days later as, as time went on. And they talked about kerosene bombs being dropped on the town kerosene bombs but as we're hearing as we're seeing in this documentation here this entry says that law enforcement officials use airplanes to drop fire bombs on buildings homes and fleeing families stating that they were protecting against a negro uprising mm. the massacre was omitted from state and local records and rarely mentioned in history books, classrooms, or even in private. And there, therein lies the problem with the presentation of black history as a part of our history, right? As Americans, as a nation, to know that this great nation, which prides itself, which used that code, code language of law and order, has used its law enforcement capabilities has used its sheriffs and its police departments to inflict death to terrorize to disenfranchise its black residents its african-american citizens this is central this is central to the to the opposition to police violence to the killing of unarmed black men in the streets today by our police it is absolutely connected to that. But it is omitted from history. So we don't get to read about it. We don't get to discuss it. We don't feel any particular way about it because it may as well have not existed except for those people who were there. And the little bit of history that we do get about it is always underreported. Right. So if they say 200 people were killed. Let's figure it was a thousand. Because when we're not going to be honest, or I should say, they're not going to be honest with us. And they're not going to be honest with themselves. And because of that, we continue to leave room for these impassioned statements of all lives matter. 
while ignorant of a history that has said the exact opposite. So we could talk about Springfield, Illinois, 1908, 5,000 whites and European immigrants. And you could say that they were trying out for the team, right? Because if we have a society that is built on white supremacy, and thereby black degradation, black marginalization, black oppression. And if you want to be on the team, you got to show that you are dedicated and committed to upholding the core values of society. So you had these European immigrants. They hadn't gotten their white cards just yet. But they spread out to attack black neighborhoods, murdered black citizens on the streets, destroyed black businesses and homes. Eventually, the state militia was called out to stop the rioting. Right, eventually. We can talk about the Elaine Massacre of 1919. That's Elaine, Arkansas. Uh, and that's where my peoples are from, on my father's side. Um, we're talking about a community, at the time, a community of sharecroppers. And if you know anything about sharecropping, this is where you have a plot of land to work you have, you're supposed to be able to raise enough food for yourself and whatever else you're raising, you give that back to the, uh, to the landowner. All right. Generally the same folks that you were under during slavery are the same folks that you were under as a sharecropper, right? Because you were, as Dr. King, uh, so eloquently, uh, put it when talking about white privilege and reparations for African-Americans says that after freedom, said that black folks were basically offered the freedom. They were offered freedom and famine at the same time. Freedom and famine at the same time. Given no land, given no resources to allow them to build and carve out a life for themselves like everyone else. But basically just set out to pasture. So they were given the freedom to go and starve. Right. So sharecropping, sharecropping, uh, this system. Where they could work the land. And potentially build up something for themselves. But each year, uh, sharecroppers would present their their crops. And because of the exploitative nature of the relationship and the individuals, the white landowners, They'd hand them a bill. They'd say that, well, you made 500, but you owe me an extra 150. So we'll just tack it on and maybe you can get it next year. So they become perpetual slaves to the land. They become tied to the land. If they run off, they find themselves imprisoned and shipped out to a slave labor camp. Right. Or working that land. That same land for free. I mean, really for free now. So they're back. They're back in slavery. So the. That's the backdrop for the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America. They had organized chapters in the Elaine area in 1918, 1919. And um, let's just get to the end of it. Right. They didn't. The 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 uh, the white landowners. They did not like the idea of these sharecroppers unionizing. They didn't like the idea of them uh, enter, entering into any type of collective bargaining, 
right, where they could secure a fair price for themselves and possibly unshackle themselves from that land. They ain't like that. No, it's not going to happen. So worse comes to worse, and they do what they do. County sheriff organized a posse. Whites gathered to put down what they called, once again, a black insurrection. See, the insurrection on uprising, that's, that language is going to be present throughout each, just about every uh, instance of white aggression and barbarism towards black folk. Oh, and the other, the other element is always going to be, uh, I shouldn't say always, but quite often, right? At least it's the case in Rosewood. It's the case in uh, Greenwood, in, uh, in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There was the assault of a white woman, or the alleged assault of a white woman. Uh, the same with Emmett Till, right? These, these ideas that allow for white men to go outside of the law, to go out, to take the law into their own hands uh, and to inflict whatever damage that they really, in, in their hearts, whatever they feel uh, is appropriate. And usually what they feel, they're looking to burn the fields, to cut down the trees, to burn the houses, to kill everybody in sight. And then they are satiated. So Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America um, here's the rundown. They had organized chapters in the Elaine area in 1918. September 29th, representatives met with about 100 black farmers at a church near Elaine to discuss how to obtain fairer settlements from landowners. Whites had resisted union organizing by the farmers and often spied on or disrupted those meetings. And in a confrontation at the church, a county deputy was shot and killed and another white man wounded. Well, now it's go time. County sheriff organized a posse. Whites gathered to put down what was rumored to be a black insurrection. Other whites entered Phillips County to join the action, making a mob of 500 to 1,000. And they attacked blacks on sight across the county. The governor called in 500 federal troops who arrested nearly 260 blacks and were accused of killing some. Now, some, <laughs> this, once again, we've got to be really careful, right? There's a lot of, lot of padding that has to be laid down before before the truth is given or maybe the truth is given and the padding is laid on top of it uh, to obscure it. The idea of some is not a number, right? We don't know how many some is, but we do know that according to um, eyewitness and survivors that troops engaged in torture of black folks. Troops did. And troops were arbitrarily killing black people in addition to arresting the people that they they should have been there to protect right but that is just kind of par for the course that's what that's what the system has allowed and that's what the system has prided itself on because the system doesn't have to look at itself it just it does and it moves on so over a three-day period Fatalities included 100 to 240 blacks. Remember what we said about numbers, whatever they report, just multiplied by three. Right? Some estimates of more than 800. As well as five white men. Hmm, maybe friendly fire. The events have been subject to debate, especially the total of black deaths, of course. Of course, those numbers will be debated. Because nobody wants to think that they are a monster. 
right? Nobody wants to think that they are the devil incarnate. Nobody wants to see themselves as a savage. And the numbers, right? The numbers sometimes, sometimes the numbers are the proof. So we got to dispute those numbers. And lastly, we could talk about, or at least in depth, Rosewood, Florida, 1923. Another massacre, racially motivated. Destruction of a, of a, a whole town. And once again, what's the common thread with this one as well? There were allegations, once again, of, uh, of a white woman being assaulted by a black drifter. And uh, the white men got together. And they started looking. And what happens? Well, you, you have this town of, of uh, upwardly mobile or at least stable black folks. And they become the target. So the town is destroyed. Folks are displaced once again. And no one, no one is charged. No one is, is tried. No one serves a day. There is no recompense. There is no justice. This is a part of our nation's history. But the sanitizing of history, the sanitizing of the history of white aggression fueled by white supremacy, it has continued to result in African-Americans hollering in one form or another, our lives matter. Black lives matter. Now, the instances that I have mentioned are just a drop in the bucket. I mean, it's just a drop. I mean, it's, it's almost infinitesimal. When it comes to the sustained presence of white aggression against the presence of black independence, prosperity, or simply black folks striving for equal footing. Not, not an elevated status, just equal footing. And the opportunity to benefit from their own labor. But let's also be honest here. There are white people who are very much aware of this history of aggression and are as outraged and as sickened and as committed to unearthing it and working to give a different possibility to our future generations. And there are also, there are also white people who are just fine with this history and are very much aware of the pain and the aggression and are just fine with a system that claims color blindness but acts otherwise and they pretend ignorance I thought it was only proper that I mentioned that it is not simply it is not simply black and white even though that's what we've been talking about but it's not simply just black and white and we'll probably have to pick this up later on right the responsibility of those of those white folk who understand the brutality of the system right who are actually working for change who have it in their hearts to stand up and be allies uh, that that deserves its own its own space so maybe maybe we'll get back to that at some point in, in the near future but until our educators black and white use this month as a way to honestly look at not only the contributions of african-americans but also to look at the assaults on african-american communities 
then how can we arrive at a healing station? How can we arrive at safety for those who have been victimized? And nobody likes to see themselves as a victim, right? Everybody wants to be a survivor, right? That's kind of the language that we use today. We're survivors. We're not victims. Well, that's that's fine. We can be survivors, but we don't want to be victims again. We don't want to have to go through the same type of assaults, the same type of attacks, be victims of the same psychological and physical um, oppression. We don't want to have to go through that again. So I'd like to be a survivor who doesn't have to keep repeating history. But our history, and I mentioned those just three or four, I think, uh, instances to show that this pattern exists. This pattern is real. White aggression fueled by white supremacy is real. And it has to be it has to be uh, combated. It has to be exposed and it has to be something that our children in particular are aware of. If we're going to fashion anything resembling what we call ourselves or, or claim to represent this nation that is uh, that that guarantees life and liberty in pursuit of happiness. If we're going to be that nation, if we're going to be a nation where all lives actually matter, if we don't come to grips with the fact that black lives have not mattered until we come to grips with our past, we will not be able to chart a course for a future. At least not a whole one, not a healthy one. So like my man Jay-Z said, how can you heal what you never reveal? Right. I'm a big J fan. How can you heal what you never reveal? So in closing, this is our challenge for Black History Month moving forward. Teach with fullness and accuracy. Assess the learning of students. Determine the impact on values and understanding of privilege. And last of all, we have to have actions that level the playing field and ensure that black life is protected. Because until black lives matter, then all lives do not matter. So I thank you all for joining me. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Black Glue Podcast, on Twitter at BLK Glue Podcast, and you can email us at the Black Glue Podcast at gmail.com. And we're going to leave you with the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This interview originally aired in June of 1967. What is it about the Negro? I mean, every other group that came as an immigrant somehow, not easily, but somehow got around it. Is it just the fact that Negroes are black? White America must see that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, that is one thing that other immigrant groups haven't had to face. The other thing is that the color became a stigma. American society made the Negroes color a stigma. America freed the slaves in 19, I mean 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base. And yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate, and therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. 
And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading.